tonight because I'll be away. Uh, but Greg Whitney uh, will be helping uh, with that. Guys, if you are interested and uh, willing to step up, have you noticed, uh, I don't want to get on a tangent here, but if you look at the church, if you look at uh, ministries, even here on campus, and if you look even globally, you see women rising up and leading where I think uh, we give God praise for that, but there is a need and a call for men to step up as well and lead and serve. So I don't care where you are on your spiritual journey. I just need you to care and want to work with us to help serve uh, meals to the homeless and possibly build relationships out there. There's an organic farm. There's, they need career training. They want sports teams to come out. There's a whole bunch of options, but we're just going to start to see, can we get six to ten guys uh, to commit to doing this? So if you want to be a part of that, Greg Whitney will be up here afterward, and you, you can sign up, and we're going to begin that journey tonight. Well, our speaker today is Olive Ananu, and uh, she was supposed to be with us in February, but due to weather uh, and a snowstorm, she could not be with us. She's with Compassion International, which is a child sponsorship program, and I've heard a lot of stories, and we've had a lot of speakers that come in and share um, about Compassion, but I want to give you a little bit of research and data on child sponsorship, uh, because we need to back things up with research and data, and how effective are we in what we're doing? How can we assess what we're doing? Well, in 2008, Bruce Weidrich, a professor of economics and international studies at the University of San Francisco, along with two colleagues, set out to explore the impact of international child sponsorship. This was the first study of its kind, even though there are all these organizations, no one's really researched to see how effective it is. Uh, Realizing that almost no research had been published, he envisioned a comparative look at several child sponsorship organizations. However, only one child sponsorship organization accepted the invitation to participate in the study, Compassion International. So So instead of comparing sponsorship programs of separate organizations, their research team focused exclusively on researching the adult life outcomes of Compassion's formally sponsored children against the outcomes of children who were not part of the ministry's programs. The results were published in April 2013 in the Journal of Political Economy, and you may have seen it on the cover of Christianity Today. Uh, it, they demonstrate a large and st- statistically significant positive impacts from child sponsorship on years of completed schooling, primary and secondary school completion, and on the probability and quality of adult employment. 27 to 40 percent were more likely to finish secondary education than those who were not not part of the sponsorship program. 50 to 80 percent were more likely to complete a university education than non-sponsored children. When formally sponsored Compassion children were asked which which component of Compassion's program was most beneficial, the most common answer was educational support. The second was spiritual or character development. Former Compassion-sponsored children were, as adults, 30 to 75% more likely to become community leaders than their non-sponsored peers, were 40 to 70% more likely to become church leaders than their non-sponsored peers, were, as adults, 63% more likely to become teachers than their non-sponsored peers. Dr. Weidrich refers to Compassion's child sponsorship program as the great equalizer in that it levels the playing field for children seeking an education in the developing world. In countries where there is a greater need or where children face greater obstacles to achieving an education, Compassion tends to have a greater impact. The study concludes that the benefit of children who are enrolled in Compassion Child Sponsorship Programs in these six country studies between 1980 and 1992 were measurable and provided large and statistical significant increases in the areas of education, employment, and leadership. 
sponsoring children through Compassion International or perhaps another organization within your church uh, that you know where the resources are used well makes a difference, and the research backs that up clearly. And today we will hear a story of one who was uh, once sponsored. I won't give much of her background other than I'll begin with her college career. Olive obtained a volleyball scholarship to play at South Carolina State University, where she graduated with a bachelor's degree in social work. She moved on to University of Georgia, where she graduated in 2007 with a master's degree. She currently lives with her family in Georgia and is a practicing social worker with the Georgia Department of Family and Children's Services. And she, of course, is most proud of her four-year-old son, soon-to-be four-year-old son, Felix. Will you please welcome Ms. Olive Ananu. Good morning. Thank you for having me here. I'm always blessed to uh, stand before students because for me, being a student, there were a lot of people that inspired me and made me who I am. And I'm so blessed to be here. And my prayer is that God speaks through me to inspire you to serve others, to create time for others. As you can tell, I'm right about 34 years old. I will be 35 in June. But my life started at the age of seven. I will share a little bit where I grew up. My mother was a Christian from an Anglican church. My father was a Muslim. My mother was dating my father without the consent of my maternal grandparents. And she lived in a small town called Apache. My grandparents lived in Kitkum, a small town called Muchwini. And Muchwini has a population of about 30,000 people. And between Muchwini and Apache, it's about three and a half hours. When my mother had me and my older sister, Juliet, my grandparents were not aware And so word reached my grandparents, and they found out my mother was illegally married to a Muslim man and living with him, and now has children. They left Kitkum on a bicycle and rode for three hours to get me and Juliet. They brought us to Muchwini, and in our homestead, we had five huts. Right at the entrance of the hut was the kitchen, Next to the kitchen was my grandmother's hut, and then my grandfather's hut, then the male, and then the female guest hut. There are five in total, shaped in form of an ark. And right in the middle of the homestead was the fireplace. That was a very special place for me, because that is where all the other children within the community would come and hear my grandfather teach from the word. It was very fun to watch the other children as they memorized verses and they were getting treats from my grandfather. And of course, me being very young, about three years old, I would terrorize them to give me their treats. When I was about three and a half, I started memorizing the verses as well. The first chapter in the Bible that I memorized at that age was Psalms 23. Later, in, later through my life, that psalm was very instrumental When I turned about four and a half, I began to understand the teachings that my grandfather 
was passing on to us through the Bible. And I can remember that when I began understanding, comprehending what the teachings were about, I wanted to accept Christ in my life. I was five years old. We were at the fireplace. I asked my friends to pray with me as my grandfather led me to Christ. It was also a life-changing time because, you know, at five years old, you're excited because you're starting pre-K. Kindergarten, you start pre-K at four. Kindergarten at five years old. I was very excited. This was a Friday. Of course, I knew I was going to be in school on Monday. But my grandfather had to test you to see if you're ready for school. And so all the neighborhood kids would come and they would line up. And as they got to the front, they would touch the opposite ear. You had to touch your opposite ear like this. And if you touched your ear, it meant that you were ready for school. Your brain had grown. I wonder how many of you can touch your ears. (laughs) Me, when I got to the front of the line, I tried to touch my ear, and I couldn't. I could not touch my ear. I tried and tried. I was old enough, but I wasn't able to touch my ear. I was very upset because all my friends were going to school on Monday. But again, I was consoled because I had Saturday and Sunday to work on it. And so Saturday reached, I wasn't playing with everybody else. I was working on touching my ear. But it didn't happen at the end of Saturday. And I was like, sure, it's Sunday, it's going to work. We left to went, we went to church. We had Sunday school and my friends, at the back of my mind, the only thing that I thought about was school on Monday and touching my ear on Sunday. So my friends prayed for me, and I tried and tried, but nothing happened. Monday morning, all my friends in the neighborhood went to school. I was the only five-year-old that was at home with grandma. Of course, we got up in the morning. We got to the farm. We, we were digging and weeding. We were done at about 3.30 when it got really hot. And we left to come back home. Of course, I was anxious about all the stories that my friends were going to come back with from school. I waited. Five, nobody. Six, nobody. Got dark. None of those children came back. Only because we received word that the rebels had attacked that school. And all those children were abducted by the Lord's Resistance Army. And they were being trained to become child soldiers. And therefore, for me, being five years old, even though I was old enough to start school, God's protection was over me. My grandparents' prayers covered me. I was not one of those children abducted by the Lord's Resistance Army. A lot of things began changing now. Parents were afraid to take their children to school, to send them to school. And therefore, there was no more school. I didn't think about school then. All I thought about was, I don't want to be one of those children that is captured by the Lord's Resistance Army. And therefore, the community members would come to our homestead to seek refuge because they believed in my, father, my grandfather. They believed that he was a follower of Christ and that if they were near him, nobody would touch them. And I believed that wholeheartedly as well, seeing the kind of life that he had lived. I remember this one evening, 
There were about 70 people in my grandmother's hut. My grandmother was sitting at the door, and I was sitting right at her feet. The door was a little bit open. If you were standing outside the hut, you could see that there are people in there. Children coughing, very uncomfortable, sweaty. My grandfather sitting at the fireplace. The rebels approached the homestead. It was very frightening. We knew that it was over for us. They approached my grandfather and asked my grandfather how he was doing. He said that he was doing well. And then two of them walked to the hut where we were, and they peeped inside to look and see if there was anyone. And then they told my grandfather, there is nobody. Do you know what message that was sent to me at that age? I went straight to the stories that my grandfather taught me about the Israelites and how they were passed over. For me, the Passover was not just a story in the Bible. It had come to reality. God protected us, and the rebels left the homestead. Later on, the rebels began learning that people were hiding in their homes. And so what they would do, they would come to a home and burn down the homes, lock the doors first, and set the hearts on fire. If you were in the home, you died in the fire. It was very heartbreaking to see my grandmother lining up blankets in one corner and directing us. You cannot sleep in the hut because you might die in the fire. You have to go sleep in the forest by yourself. She would instruct us to pick up our blankets. You have your dinner by 5.30, pick up your blanket and go sleep in the forest. I can't, Grandma. I can't, Grandpa. You have to go by yourself because if you go with your sister, if you go with your cousin or friend, and the rebels find you there, they will take two of you. You go by yourself because in the event that you're captured, it's just one member that is gone. That went on for almost a year. When I turned six years old, things began changing too, whereby the rebels now realize they couldn't find children anywhere because they were hiding in the forest at night. And so they decided to burn the forests. I remember the last time that I hid in the forest, the Lord revealed to me something that, as a six-year-old, I will never forget it. I got my blanket, and I, got, I was in the forest. Got my little bushy area, whereby if I hid, you would not see me. It was drizzling a little bit, and I covered myself with my blanket, but I could hear noises. I was like, oh, well, it's just a wild animal passing by. And as I turned to look behind me, the noise kept on increasing. It was something just wading through the grass and just coming towards where I was. I was very afraid. And I started praying. I looked back. It had approached me, a big python snake. It got to me. At that point, I was thinking of so many things, but I'm very thankful that my grandparents taught me the word at an early age. And my mind went straight to the story of Daniel. I said, God, if you were able to deliver Daniel from the lion's den, sure, this python snake is a piece of cake. And I prayed, Lord, please send this snake away. Please send it away. You created it. Send it away. 
But no, the snake kept on approaching. It approached me and coiled itself around me twice and started squeezing me. At that point, I knew that I was going to die. And being six years old, I knew that I had a lot of sins. I began confessing my sins. And my God works in a wonderful way. My mind went straight to Psalms 23, the first Psalm that I learned at three and a half. I started saying it out loud. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul and guides me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you, Lord, are with me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Lord listened. God listened to me. The snake uncoiled itself. And left me. For me, there was nothing that was going to happen to me after that. That God could not intervene in. When I turned seven years old, we had walked so much that I couldn't even remember some of the towns we had passed. We used to walk. The only thing that I had on me was my blanket. No shoes. Walking for days with no food. But the only hope that you had was the next day you're still breathing. I remember reaching Kitkum Town. Kitkum Town to me was a little bit safe because they had a hospital where we would all come as children and sleep there and then leave in the morning to go wherever. It was also very heartbreaking for me to watch a seven-year-old caring for younger siblings because the parents had been killed and the children just ran away to watch brothers and sisters not knowing where each other's are. And it was during that time that three boys from San Diego were able to enlighten the world on the plight of invisible children because nobody ever saw what was happening to us children at that time. Right when I turned seven and a half, my grandfather said, you can't live this life. You're seven. You've never been to school. You don't have a future here. I'm going to put you on a bus so you can go to the capital city. You're going to live with your mother. I was very shocked because all along growing up, I knew grandpa and grandma were mom and dad. And so after that, I had to get on that bus. We got to the capital city. It was very different. I had a torn dress on, no shoes, never worn shoes. My feet were looking like this. There were so many cars. There were so many buildings. It was very strange to me. People spoke a different language. I found out my mother had a younger, my younger sister, Charity. My mother also looked a little bit different, but at the age of seven, you don't really ask a lot of questions. We went home. We reached home. It was about one-bedroom house. 
She lived in a, an area, it was a housing that was provided for nurses. She was a nurse working as a midwife. I slept in the living room with my sisters. My mother slept in the bedroom. My mother had very clear instructions. You only talked to her when she talked to you. If you had questions, you didn't really ask because she was facing something greater. I didn't know what it was at that time. I remember her instructing, we are going to Kampala Baptist Church. Of course, I I knew church. That was like fun. It was going to be fun because it's church. We walked and we got to Kampala Baptist Church. She told me to line up behind the other children because she was going into another room. So I lined up and I could pick from the back and see that there were children at the front. They were holding some numbers and they were taking pictures of them. I had no idea of what number they were going to give me. And as I got to the front of the line, they gave me a number that said UG1270188. And they took a picture of me. And I had no idea they were going to make a child packet for me just like this one. They made my child packet and it ended up at Hillsong Church in Sydney, Australia. And a family, Maria and Hanshru, they had two children of their own and they had two foster children with them. They picked my packet. They wrote me my first letter. And the first sentence in that letter transformed who I am today. And the words were, we love you. And we will do everything in our power to release you from poverty in Jesus' name. That was the beginning of my transformation. I believed without a doubt that what I had experienced was going to be erased through Christ. My sponsors wrote to me every month. They encouraged me. They prayed with me. My sponsor dad's letters were a little bit different. His letters would go like this. I hope you're using the money I sent you well. And my sponsored mom, very prayerful, very, very prayerful. A lot of times they didn't know what was going on with me. But God was able to give them the right word to console me. I lived with my mother from 1988 to 1991. Remember when I said that there was something going on with her and I had no idea of what it was? She got very sick and her sister, Eudius, took her to the hospital and stayed with her. And my, my aunt, Eudius, actually passed away in the hospital while taking care of my mother because she contracted meningitis. My mother was so devastated and she had to return back home. When she returned home, she was just singing, it is well, it is well with my soul. And two days after that, my mother died of HIV AIDS. Oh, you can imagine how upset I was. I asked God, what did I do? What did I do, God? Why are you punishing me? 
Please tell me what I did so I can apologize for each and every one of them. I was tired. I was so tired and ready to give up. Because I felt the wrath of God was upon me. But my sponsors restored my salvation. They restored me. They prayed with me. They sent me letters. The church members encouraged me. But above all, they spiritually mentored me to overcome all the trauma that I had faced. My sponsors transformed who I am. They changed me completely. They made me believe again in grace. When I went to high school, I was in my junior year, I actually planned my funeral because I had tuberculosis. I weighed 95 pounds. Everyone around me was telling me I had HIV AIDS. My sisters were very devastated. When my mom died, we moved together with our cousins. We were about eight of us. The oldest was 16. But through the church, and because we were in a compassion program, we were able to get food and support. I was able to go to school through compassion. I was able to get a mattress. I was able to get shoes. I was able to get my needs met. And above all, I was able to grow spiritually in his word. And all this was possible because someone extended grace to me. And that has taught me to extend grace to someone else. And my choosing of the social work profession did not just start when I went to South Carolina State. But it was planted a very long time ago to care for others, to create time for others. I know there are some of you that are wanting to sponsor a child today. It's not about the guilt. Don't feel guilty about it. Extend that grace to that child. Extend that grace that will feed that child spiritually and physically. Extend that grace that will give medical care to that child. You can do it as a class. You can do it as friends, as an individual, as a family. You can change that child's life. I have never met my sponsors. I have known them for 25 years. I call them mom and dad because that's who they are to me. If you're thinking of sponsoring a child today, if you want to sponsor a child today, could you please raise your hand? Just raise your hand and keep it raised. There will be someone that will pass a child packet to you. Just keep it raised so that they can see your hand. And I know that there are some of you that are just thinking about it, not very sure. You have the time, the whole day today. You can go to the compassion table and pick up a child right at the back. For me, I made that decision when I was in my freshman year in college. I picked up Ross's child packet. Because it reminded me of that time that my sponsors picked up the child packet. 
I looked at it, pulled out the blue form, and I filled it out. And he said, $38. I started crying because $38 saved my life. $38 a month saved my life. And here I was with the opportunity to change someone else's life with $38 a month. I filled out my form and I gave it back to the table. And I started my journey with Rose. Rose graduated from the program last year. And now I'm sponsoring another one from Dominican Republic, Rayma. You don't have time to think about it. If you can save a life, just do it. Because thinking takes a lot of time. Sometimes years. When we believe in Christ, that in all things, in all things, nothing is impossible with him. As long as we trust him in his word, that he will transform us to extend grace to someone else. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm really blessed to be here. It's a wonderful place. Thank you so much, Corey, for having me. Thank you. Let us pray. I don't know what to pray, Lord, other than to thank you for Olive's life and her being so bold to share her story with us this morning. Pray your blessing upon her and her family and all that you've called her to do and to be. Continue to have your love and grace be shed abroad in her heart and life as she shares her story and cares for those in the state of Georgia with a calling upon her life to be a social worker. We thank you for her life. I thank you, Lord, that uh, the packet I picked up when I was a student here at ANC was Lamin Jamita, and I had the privilege of sponsoring him for many, many years. Thank you for that. And so we pray for those today that are feeling called to sponsor, and we know that some may not be in a financial situation to do that. Now, may they not feel guilty, as Olive has made it very clear, but may they extend grace in other ways to a child that is in need. Use us, Lord, we pray, for your glory for your love, and for your grace. We are blessed today and give you praise for what you've done in and through Olive's life. I hope that it has challenged us all.